It's good to see everybody here today. For those I haven't met, my name is Bill Birch. I'm one of the pastors, <laughs> and it's good to see everybody here today. We have had a magnificent week at Vacation Bible School. You've been hearing us talk about that throughout the morning. You saw, it was ministerial estimate, I was trying to count, which is like trying to count minnows in a bucket. We had about 40 of our children up here, so multiply that times five, and then put them all in this room, plus all the teenage and adult helpers we had. It was a week full of energy and excitement. Uh, Sarah was up here dressed as the light keeper in her raincoat, and then Tiffany was dressed, uh, boys and girls, was she a parrot? A puffin, okay, I kept getting that confused, and it was just an amazing week. Our our four-year-old granddaughter was here, and she came home every week all excited and bubbly, and you'd ask her what she'd learned about Jesus, and she could tell the stories, and Jeff's exactly right. This is raising up another generation in the church. Many of us have memories of what Vacation Bible School meant to us, and we have a chance to build that faith foundation for our children in turn, and that is quite a blessing. Today we are continuing our summer worship series, which is entitled Blessed to Be a Blessing. And over June and July, we're looking at the eight Beatitudes or blessings pronounced by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount as the broader context of the Beatitudes. And today we're going to be looking at the first Beatitude. Our scripture lesson comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. As you're able, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the gospel. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. And would you please be seated. Jesus introduced the Sermon on the Mount by blessing the poor in spirit. And I'm going to make a case that this beatitude is not only first in order, but also in primacy. Because the priority of being poor in spirit is fundamental and foundational to the Christian life and all the other Beatitudes flow out of this font. Every Beatitude has three elements. There's the declaration of blessing, blessed are. There's a condition of those who are blessed, the poor in spirit. And there is the result of that blessing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's begin with the declaration of God's blessing. Blessed or blessed are. I shared with you last week that the Greek term underlying this can be translated in a variety of ways. It can be blessed, the supreme bliss, oh, the bliss, fortunate, favored, but many modern translations choose to use the word happy. And I shared with you, I have a theological argument with using the word happy are those. 
Happy at its root means hap, happenstance, happening. It's a word for luck, fortune, favor. That's dependent upon the circumstances of the world about us. But the blessedness that Jesus is describing is not based on outward circumstances, but an inward relationship with God. And blessedness is something that the world cannot give, but neither can it take away. It's that sweet spot in life where we are leaning into becoming the people that God created us to be. We're the very best versions of ourselves. And in that blessed state, we experience God's favor along with purpose, value, worth, and aim. And that is our birthright as God's children. Blessed are, and then the second element is the condition of the blessed, those who are poor in spirit. According to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first major sermon. And out of all the ways he could have began the sermon, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke has another version of the sermon in his gospel. That's called the Gospel on the Plain. And he puts Jesus' statement much shorter and blunter. He has him say, Blessed are the poor, followed by a warning, and woe to those who are rich. Pastors in seminary take what are called homiletic courses. They're supposed to teach us how to preach. And professors emphasize the importance of the introduction of a sermon. Pastors only have a few moments to hook the congregation before their attention goes wandering in a myriad of different directions. Jesus obviously never took a homiletics course. Because far from his introduction enticing the congregation, he seems to be doing everything possible to alienate them by saying, blessed are the poor, or even spiritualize it, as Matthew does, poor in spirit. Nobody wants to be poor. We reject poverty. We don't embrace it. We want to be financially secure and wealthy. We want our money working for us, not us working for our money. One man said, I've been poor and I've been rich. Rich is better. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, time and again, we see Jesus take the world's values and turn them upside down. What does it mean to be poor what does it mean to be poor in spirit in God's kingdom? Well, in part, what it means is a total dependence upon God. That we recognize all the worldly security that we invest so much in means nothing. That it can be taken away in a moment. And so we come to God seeking salvation, and oftentimes we want to use our self-righteous acts and tell God all the good things that we have done while we're deserving of admission into the kingdom of God and how we are really good people. And yet our own self-righteousness can be a large stone wall that separates us from faith. Because what we discover over and again in the gospel is salvation is not something you seize, it's something you receive. It's not something you earn or merit. It's something God gives to us because God is God who loves us. 
When you look at the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, as we did last week, in their introductory moments, their message was very similar. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, and Jesus appeared out of the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that word repent means to turn away from sin and to turn toward holiness. To turn our back on the way the world does things and to instead embrace the way God does things. And the poor in spirit recognize their total dependence upon God alone. And that challenges our worldly egos. Because it means we must recognize our spiritual poverty, our bankrupt lifestyles, and our worthless possessions. And it scares us to depend upon God rather than depend upon ourselves. Now, that's laughable when I say it out loud, isn't it? Let me repeat that. Depend upon God rather than depend upon ourselves. But Jesus said the person who tries to gain his life will lose it. The person who loses his life for my sake will gain it. And yet it frightens us so much to give up control to God because in our mind... Giving up control to God is like driving down a winter road and hitting a patch of black ice. And the tires lose traction. And the steering wheel begins to spin in our hands. And the car goes round and around and we're waiting for the inevitable collision. That's our sinful nature whispering in our ear. You see, giving control up to God is much more like boarding an airplane for a long expected journey. And when you walk into the cabin, you know which direction to go. You don't belong up in the cockpit. You belong back in the passenger section, trusting somebody with experience and knowledge to take you where you need to go. And for somebody who likes to control things, who is OCD about life, the idea that you can give it up and depend upon God is at part frightening, but it's also freeing. You can give up worrying about controlling an uncontrollable world, about charting a future that is unchartable, and instead trust in the one who was and is and is to come, and to know that we're held in God's hands and God will keep us now and forever. The poor in spirit cultivate a sense of dependence, and it's accompanied by a spirit of humility. Humility is one of those odd attributes in the Christian life that's a slippery substance that's difficult to gain and even harder to hold on to. And I think part of the reason I grew up in the South, so I think it's particularly true in the South, and maybe this is true of other regions in the nation as well, is that we practice a lot of false humility, downplaying our natural abilities. I recall when I was serving country churches that on a regular basis we would have covered dish dinners. They were not going by the OK Cafe to pick something up. These were men and women who had cooked for decades. Everything was homemade. It was delicious. And when you read in the Old Testament that the Jews anticipated the kingdom of God would be like a great feast, you would understand why at a country church covered dish. And a matriarch would bring in this pound cake hot out of the oven, with whipped cream, fresh beside it, and fresh fruit cut up, and people would eat it, and they would exclaim on how good it was, and she would stand back and say, oh, it's hardly fit to eat. 
Meanwhile, thinking in her head, and it's the best, best blessed pound cake you'll ever put in your mouth. <laughs> That's not the type of humility I'm talking about. C.S. Lewis has one of the best definitions of humility I've ever heard. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not putting yourself down. It's not saying you're not good at something you really are good at. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That works, doesn't it? Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, thinking more of God, thinking more of others, taking the focus off of me, my, and mine, and instead focusing upon the one who created us, redeemed us, and sustained us, and loving God and loving others. Father Jacques Philippe wrote a book that I'm using throughout the series, and he was very helpful to me on humility, because here's the reality. There's an old joke, if you're humble, do you know it? Have you ever caught yourself, I have several times, and maybe this is my own confession of sin, suddenly going, hey, I'm being humble. (laughs) And the moment you think that, it's gone. Because now you're focusing on yourself and your own humility. What the father said was, how we gain humility is through gratitude. Now, I want you to think that one out through with me. How we gain humility is through gratitude. Because what does gratitude do? It looks at life, and it sees the gifts that we have. And with clear spiritual vision, we recognize everything. Everything is a gift. Then we look to the giver, and we give thanks. I can do that. You can do that. And that's a backdoor way into humility. Rather than trying to be humble, when once you focus on it, you've lost it. Instead, be grateful and recognize what God has done for you. And we're totally dependent upon God's grace. Then the third part of any beatitude is the result of the blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you flip over to Mark and Luke, they'll say kingdom of God. But remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience who thought God's word was so, God's name was so holy, they would write it without vowels in order so it would not be pronounced and they would not say it out loud. So, in order to honor their sensibilities, Matthew says kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God, but they mean basically the same thing. And what we discover is that there is always a future and a present tense to God's kingdom. We certainly lean forward in hope and anticipation of when God's kingdom is established in its fullness, when people will study war no more, when the lion and the lamb will lie down together, when there will be no mourning or crying or pain or grief or the old order has passed away and the new has come, and we anticipate that, that hope of glory that is ours in Christ. But there's also a present reality of God's kingdom breaking into our lives and into our world, and we witness it all the time when we see the Holy Spirit work. And powerful things occur and miraculous deeds happen. We prayed a few moments ago the Lord's Prayer. And part of that prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you do God's will, God's kingdom breaks in. And it is present all about us. The poor in spirit will certainly inherit God's kingdom in the future. But they also experience it here and now. Later in Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a story which I believe illustrates the first beatitude. 
Luke sets up the story this way. He says, Jesus was speaking to those who trusted in their own righteousness and looked down on other people. And the story goes this way. Once upon a time, there were two men who entered into the temple. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisees were a denomination of the Jewish faith, devout people who sought to follow every nuance and detail of the Mosaic law. They called themselves the separate ones because they tried to separate themselves from sin and from those who were sinful. And in many ways, the Pharisees represented the best of the Jewish faith. At their heart, they were trying to be the people they thought God commanded through the Mosaic law. Here's the danger. There's always a very thin line between sanctification and sanctimony, between righteousness and self-righteousness, between being holy and holier than thou. And it's a slippery slope that's easy to go down quickly. The tax collector who came into the temple, well, he was also a separate one, but not from his own choice. Remember that the Roman Empire ruled Israel, and like every political power before and hence, needed money, needed taxes. And so they carved up the country into sections and would assign tax collectors to collect the monies. And these Jewish men were despised and looked down upon by the rest of the Israelis because they were seen as the worst of collaborators. In fact, in Jesus' ministry, oftentimes you'll see the phrase sinners and tax collectors put together. So he walks into the temple, and it would have caused quite a stir. And people would have been muttering and whispering, saying, what's a man like that doing in a place like this? The Pharisee struts into the temple like he owns it, carefully avoiding contact with all the sinners about him, finds a private place, and then Luke chapter 18, verse 11 can be translated three different ways. The Pharisee stood up and prayed by himself. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The Pharisee stood up and prayed to himself. The Pharisee stood up and prayed by himself because he wanted to make sure he wasn't surrounded by anybody else that was sinful. He prayed about himself, and we're going to hear in a few moments what a recitation of his holiness truly looked like. But ultimately, he prayed not to God, but to himself. And what a prayer it was. In a very loud voice, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, especially this tax collector right here. His pride leads him to comparing himself to others around him. And he sounds like quite a man, somebody any church would love to have. He says he fasts twice a week, he tithes. Tithing alone would make him an honored member of a congregation. And if you doubted his holiness, all you had to do was ask him. The tax collector walked into the temple and he stood by himself because nobody else wanted to be around him. He prayed about himself, but it wasn't a recitation of his holiness. Instead, it was a cry of repentance as he confessed his sin. But he prayed not to himself, but he prayed to God. 
And he stood there in the temple and watched as a sacrifice was made on the altar by the high priest for the sins of the people of Israel and how his response and cry is normally translated into English is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what it literally says is, God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. He's looking at the sacrifice for the sins of Israel and in essence saying, if only that was for me and I could leave this place forgiven. And then Jesus concludes the story and it's a shocking ending. He says, I tell you the truth, it's the tax collector rather than the Pharisee that he leaves justified because those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the crowd was shocked. Because it was obvious from the start who was the hero and who was the villain. The Pharisee was the hero. The tax collector was the villain. They knew how the story was supposed to end. But the Pharisee trusted in his own righteousness. He recited all these wonderful things that he had done. He had no need for the sacrifice at the altar. He had no need for forgiveness because he had earned everything he had. The tax collector, on the other hand, had no illustrations about his life. He struggled under the weight of his sin. He felt the hateful stares of others around him. He knew he had done nothing to earn God's merit, and the only thing he could depend upon was God's grace. And it drove him to the prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh God, if it was only for me. And he embodied what it means to be poor in spirit. And because of that, received the kingdom of heaven. You see, the poor in spirit recognize their total dependence upon God. In humble spirits, we bow before the Lord, realizing there's nothing we can say or do. All we can do is receive and then rejoice. Growing up in country churches as a teenager, at the conclusion of most of our services, we would have an altar call. And there are a variety of different songs that we would sing, but absolutely number one on the hit list was Just As I Am. And we would sing that hymn over and over and over again until somebody came to the altar. In fact, sometimes sitting in the youth group in the back, we'd go, somebody go get saved so we can go home. But the words and theology of that hymn seeped into my soul. And it still informs who I am today as a child of God. So I'd invite you now to bow your heads and in prayerful meditation before the Lord, hear these words and claim them as your own. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, Yes, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. 
In the name of the Lamb of God, we make our prayer. Amen.